Well, let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 together this morning. And we'll pick up in verse 23 here in just a few moments. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Not everything in Scripture, as I think you know, is as simple as do this and don't do that. There are lots of things that God neither commands nor forbids. And to use one of Paul's examples of that from 1 Corinthians 9, uh, you have marriage. God didn't command Paul to marry um, and it wasn't like, hey, Paul, if you don't marry, you've done something wrong and to be single is bad. No, actually, in that text, he very much affirmed of the goodness of singleness. And on the flip side, God didn't forbid Paul from marrying either. If he wanted to, that was his right. That was his, we might say, Christian liberty that he could exercise or not exercise. We might say that it was optional. When it comes to these matters of Christian liberties, there's really a ton of debate and controversy about not just how do you manage those things and how to decide uh, when or when not to practice them, but actually what, what things actually fall within the category of a Christian liberty at all. Within the last few decades, God's people have debated and disagreed about such things as appropriate styles uh, and dress. I mean, you've had discussions in the, in the, amongst God's people about things uh, like beards and hair length. I mean, uh, during the era of the hippies, it's like, well, the hippies, they have long hair and they have beards. Maybe we should stay away from that. <laughs> discussions like that, things like pants and skirts and what's appropriate, what's not, and the length of those garments. And uh, you could get into things like musical genres and instruments for personal use and worship. The debates have happened. Food and drink, the moderate use of alcohol, uh, what events uh, Christian what events and locations Christians can uh, frequent or maybe they should just steer clear of entertainment choices. I mean, the list is just huge over things that Christians have maybe said, well, that's a Christian liberty issue or maybe it is, maybe it's not. And the debates have gone on and on. For hundreds of years, Christian liberty has been a hot topic. It's a thing now and it was a thing in the church of Corinth and it'll be a thing long after you and I are all gone. Both then and now, people naturally place themselves at the heart of the Christian liberty discussion. Paul has spent 1 Corinthians chapter 8 all the way through uh, now the end of chapter 10, teaching the Corinthians how to navigate matters of Christian liberty. Three whole chapters, 8, 9, and 10. And the Corinthians' question was probably something like this. Paul, do we have the right or freedom, or Christian liberty to eat meat that has been offered to an idol at at a pagan temple. Or maybe they were stating to Paul, yeah, we think we have that right. And by answering this question or this matter that the Corinthians have brought up, God gives us timeless principles to help us navigate matters of liberty and conscience in our own day and age. And Paul's going to wrap up this section with this one big idea. What should you do? You should exercise your Christian liberties to the glory of God. And that's what the text today is all about. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 23, I will read down through the first verse of chapter 11. Paul writes, all things are lawful. And you see that's in quotation marks. Apparently it was a slogan of the Corinthians. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it 
for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And just to clarify, he says, I do not mean your own conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This morning, I'd like to just note five practices of those who exercise their Christian liberties well. And the first practice is this, you need to love your neighbor Look at verse 23 again. Paul writes there, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Paul just laid down a general principle that he will illustrate in the verses that follow. And what he's saying to the Corinthians, he's affirming, yes, you are free in Christ. And you have the liberty to do so many things. But you need to make sure along the way that you're loving your neighbor in the process. You can't just think about you and what you want and what will please you. And he explains why. He says basically that's selfish. And in some instances, what might actually happen, probably unintentionally, is you might actually do spiritual harm to somebody. Verse 23 starts by quoting, as I mentioned, what was likely a Corinthian slogan. All things are lawful. Some of the Corinthians apparently were saying something to this effect. Uh, I have the right to do anything that's not a violation of Scripture. And interestingly, Paul doesn't deny that their statement is part of a proper equation on Christian liberty. In fact, I think what we will see as, as we work through this text is that Paul is actually affirming that statement. What Paul says next after their slogan is not some kind of contrast to their statement. What it is really is, is a corrective All things are lawful, but you may have certain freedoms, but before exercising them, you should consider the spiritual impact that exercising those freedoms will have on other people around you. According to verse 23, your exercise of what we might call a very legitimate Christian freedom or liberty, uh, the exercise of that in certain situations may not be spiritually helpful or constructive to your neighbor, saved or unsaved. Your actions may not speed him down the path God wants him to walk. They may have the opposite effect. Your actions may have the effect of turning your unbelieving neighbor away from the gospel or your believing neighbor away from a healthy relationship with Christ. You could actually do spiritual harm. Not in every instance, but in some instances, that's a real possibility. So what does God say to do? Well, look at verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. In other words, don't make yourself the center of your Christian liberties. You can't just think about you. Focusing on your own good could actually harm your neighbor. You could do things that might actually really hurt them. And on the flip side of that, focusing on your neighbor's good could help him. And that's certainly one of the goals. What's going to help my neighbor run to Jesus? I don't want to put any obstacle in the way of an unbeliever coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And for my brother in Jesus Christ, I don't want to do anything that's actually going to lead him down a path of destruction. Something that might even be perfectly fine for me is really going to trip him up. 
I grew up in the video game era of Nintendo 64 and PlayStation 1 and 2. It was a great time to be a kid. Uh, my brother and I had a dirt bike racing game for the Nintendo 64 that we had picked up. We thought it was tons of fun. And after we had more or less mastered the game, you know, around around the track you go to win as fast as you can rip around the track. We realized, you know, there's probably a more exciting way to play this game. Instead of racing around the track and doing all these laps to get to the finish line the fastest before all the other bikes, we decided that it would be way more fun to race around the track backwards. And instead of trying to actually win the race, what if we just try to wreck everybody else and actually see how long we can make this race last? Like, let's just wreck every other bike. And the bigger the pile up, the better. Tons of fun. We loved it. There's something about middle school and recklessness that go hand in hand. Um, I think what we need to remember is your neighbor's in a race and God wants him to run and God wants your neighbor to win. And if you're not careful with the exercise of your liberties, you might be like my brother and I, just ripping backwards around the track. What's going to help your neighbor run? I mean, you should be asking that of yourself. What's going to help me run? I want to lay aside every weight that gets in the way. What's going to help me run? But not just that, what's going to help your neighbor run? What's going to help your neighbor win? And whatever that is, that's what God wants you to do. Do that, even if it means limiting at times the exercise of what is legitimately a Christian freedom. What is legitimately your right in Christ. You need to love your neighbor. And next time you work through one of these issues, uh, it would just be helpful. It would be wise if you just stopped and actually thought for a moment about the impact of what you're doing. Uh, What's that going to have on your neighbor spiritually? And most of the time, I think that we never ask the question. It's just not something that comes to mind. We just ask, can I do this? Can I not? Well, apparently I can, so I'm going to do it. Each of, uh, we've looked at the, the first point. Each of the next two points actually, I think, correspond to one side of the equation that Paul has given us in verse 23. All things are lawful. That's one side of the equation, but that's the other side. And our second point really asserts that that first side of the equation, that all things are lawful. And that needs to be affirmed. And the third point that we'll look at will remind us that at times, not always, but at times, there is a a but. I need to consider others here. So second practice of those who exercise their liberties well, you need to recognize, and this is really important, you need to recognize God's ownership of all things. Paul addresses two hypothetical questions in verses 25 to 27. And here he affirms this statement that all things are lawful. He affirms that side of the the equation. What were the two questions that were kind of hypothetically being asked? Well, the first one was, is it okay to eat meat that's sold in the marketplace? Uh, That's verses 25 to 26. And the second question, is it okay to eat meat at your unsaved neighbor's house? Meat that maybe could have been offered to an item. What's the potential concern behind each of those questions? I mean, you put yourself in the Corinthian shoes. This is not the Christian liberty issue that you and I are dealing with. Like, oh, where did my meat come from? Literally haven't even thought about that. But that's what they were dealing with in Corinth. And if you put yourself in the shoes of a Corinthian, what's their potential concern? Well, I think I could really summarize that concern in a single word. It's the concern of association. And maybe you should just take that word and tuck it in your mind for a moment. Association, that was the concern. What if the meat was offered to an idol? 
And you can just imagine a Christian, particularly a Christian who was very much devoted to holiness and pleasing God. I want to please the Lord in everything that I do. And you can just imagine how that Christian might feel in his conscience uh, the need to track down uh, the origin and association of this meat. Have you ever felt that way with something? Well, if so, the Bible tells you what to do. Look at verse 25, and then we'll look at verse 27. Verse 25, scenario number one. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And then skip down to verse 27, you have this next scenario. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, in both scenarios, God says to eat the meat. And by the way, do that without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, don't ask questions. Why? Well, this is where I think it gets really interesting. Let me give you two possibilities and you think about which one best fits the text. Option number one, don't ask questions that you don't want answers to. Or, I mean, that's kind of a negative phrase. Maybe we should reword it. Don't ask questions because what you don't know won't hurt you. You know, if you, if you find out that at your neighbor's house, that meat on the table or the meat in the marketplace, if you all of a sudden you ask a question and you didn't find out that was, it was offered to an idol, your conscience is going to start bothering you. So maybe it's just best not to ask. That's option number one. Option number two would be this. Don't ask questions because there's no need to ask questions. It's not actually a matter of conscience. Don't ask questions for conscience sake. It's not a matter of conscience. You can eat it regardless of whether or not it has associations or origins in idolatry. Okay, you see how you could interpret the text either way there? So which one is it? Because there's a huge, huge difference between those two mentalities. What is God's rationale for not asking questions about the origin and association of the meat? Well, right between these two instances, we have verse 26, and it begins with the word for. He's going to give us the rationale, the reason why you don't need to ask those questions. Look at verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting from Psalm 24, verse 1. And basically what he's saying, he's saying, listen, guys, the meat is not the devil's meat. The meat is not the world's meat. It's God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You don't need to ask those conscience questions because it's not a conscience issue. The text assumes that eating meat offered to an idol is indeed a Christian liberty. Now, uh, you may kind of have an objection stirring within. Well, what about the previous verses where eating meat in an idol's temple was just directly forbidden? Well, the problem there, just to clarify, wasn't eating the meat per se, but it was more the worship setting. The concern wasn't about origin and association. The concern there was participation. You go into that setting, you're in the middle of idol worship and participating with demons is what he said in the previous text. All right, so back up big picture. There, there are two kind of key ideas in verses 25 to 27. The one idea on the one hand is this idea of association. What are the associations of this meat? 
And the idea, on the other hand, is the idea of ownership. Paul pits those two ideas against each other and tells you, when you put those two things up against each other, which one wins? It's ownership. When it comes to determining and exercising Christian liberties, association really is not the primary question. It's ownership. God says, in this scenario, don't even ask the association question. God's ownership of all things gives you freedom not to ask a million and one association questions. There could be other reasons not to exercise some liberty, uh, but association does not have to be one of those. Association, Paul is making clear, it's not contamination. Association could influence your liberty, sure, but it certainly does not define it. And I think we want to be extra careful not to concede to Satan or to the, or to the world what rightfully belongs to the Lord of heaven and earth. Just because Satan uses something doesn't mean that he owns it and that it belongs to him. Sure, I mean, Satan may uh, use some cows, right? That's the whole meat thing. Yeah, sure, Satan likes cows, he uses them. Okay, but that doesn't mean that they're his. Here's a thought-provoking question for you. At what point, if ever, does it become almost a form of blasphemy to attribute perpetually to Satan what actually belongs to the Lord? Often, when a person exercises their Christian liberties, they're doing something. They're testifying to something. You're testifying to the fact that there's only one true God. The world is not divided between him and other deities. And further, God's ownership, while on the one hand it gives you the freedom not to ask association questions, it also gives you the freedom to enjoy so many things. What a relief this is, not to have to track everything down and and follow everything to wherever it ties into the fall somewhere. God's ownership of all things takes so much pressure off Uh, There's a book that I would actually commend to you. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ, written by two men, Andy Nacelli and a man by the name of J.D. Crowley. And I want to read you just a part, an illustration from this book. This particular part is written by J.D. He says, I, J.D., live and work in a tribal area of Cambodia. The most important musical instrument in many tribes of Southeast Asia is the brass gong. That sounds exciting. A set of gongs consists of five larger rhythm gongs of various sizes. The largest, he says, is nearly three feet across. And eight smaller melody gongs played much like bells in a bell choir in the West. And he describes the gong this way. He says, the sound is deep and lush and captivating. But his story goes this way. He says, when we suggested to the new believers there in Cambodia that they use the gongs to worship the true God, they unanimously rejected the idea. It was just no. Gongs were so strongly associated in their minds with demon worship that their conscience would not let them use gongs to worship God. They just just couldn't do it. J.D. writes, because we understood the workings of conscience, we didn't push the matter. But we did remind them when opportunities arose that everything good belongs to God, including the gongs. Even music itself belongs to God. And he says, Satan stole these good things for his evil purposes. And here's what he said to the Cambodians. Someday, we said, when your consciences grow strong, you might decide to use these beautiful instruments to praise the true and living God. 
And a few years later, the leaders there of the churches approached us, he said, and they said that it was time. They had educated their consciences with God's truth that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So they subtracted from their conscience the conviction that it is inherently sinful to worship God with gongs. And they set a day and dozens of the tribal believers gathered from many villages to play gongs and write new songs to the praise to praise the true and living God. I think that's a really helpful illustration. You need to recognize God's ownership of all things. And if you do that, you'll actually be liberated from asking a million and one association questions and liberated to enjoy so many wonderful things. Third practice of those who exercise their liberties well. And this, this, this third point parallels uh, the second half of the equation that we saw in verse 23. All things are lawful, but. Here's the point. You need to avoid actions that lead to spiritual fallout. I want you to look at verses 28 and 29. And now we're going to be given another scenario. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And then he clarifies that he's not talking about your conscience. Verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Okay. In the previous two examples, God gave us a general rule which went something like this. Basically, feel free to exercise your Christian liberties. You have the right to do that. And now in these verses, God gives an exception to that general rule. Don't exercise your liberty when someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. God tells you not to exercise the liberty for the sake of the other person in his conscience. Now, what I find super interesting about this text is that it is like as vague as could be. Perhaps intentionally. What do I mean? Well, the setting is not clear. He's just given us two examples, the meat market, uh, your unbelieving neighbor's home. And now we get in this third example and we don't know where we're at. Are we still in the meat market? Are we at our unbelieving neighbor's home? It would seem that's probably where we're at, but actually not sure. Uh, the spiritual condition of the informant, the, the person who's saying, hey, this has been offered as a sacrifice, his spiritual condition is not clear. Is he an unbeliever? Or is he a weaker brother? Who is this guy? We don't know. And also, we don't know the motives of the informant. Those aren't clear either. Perhaps his motives are really, really sincere. Perhaps you've gone over to your neighbor's house and he puts out this spread of meat and he says, oh, Joe, I know you're a Christian and that you don't do the whole idolatry thing and I really want to respect that. Um, the beef and the shrimp and the turkey, none of that was offered in sacrifice. Um, but this other cut of meat, it was. And I just want to let you know so that you don't do something that you don't want to do. Cool, thanks. Um, or maybe you're there and there's another unbeliever and it's, hey, guess what? That meat right there was offered in a sacrifice. And it, it, it's some kind of antagonistic test. Or maybe it's another weaker brother at the table and they're like, did you know? Uh, whatever the case, and honestly, I'm not even sure it matters, the stakes, I think what we can conclude is that in this scenario, the stakes just went up. And now if you eat that meat, unfortunately, at least from your perspective, you're going to make some kind of statement. If you eat that meat, regardless of your intentions, there's a very good chance that it's going to look like you're actually condoning idolatry. Oh, thanks for telling me that was like idol meat and for being concerned about me as a Christian, even though I know you're not a Christian, I'm just going to eat it. And he's like, what? 
you're going to give the impression perhaps that idolatry is okay, or you're going to somehow embolden your weaker brother to sin. I mean, the, the stakes are up that high. And you now find yourself in a situation where if you do exercise your legitimate spiritual freedom or God-given right in that moment, there's likely to be not some kind of offense taken, but actually some kind of real spiritual fallout. An unbeliever will be turned away from the gospel or a believer will be turned toward a path of spiritual destruction. I'm not sure how common that scenario is, but it's a real possibility. And so what should you do? In that scenario, well, God says, in that scenario, when the stakes go up and there's going to be some kind of potential spiritual fallout, just don't exercise your liberty. Don't eat the meat. Don't exercise your liberty to, like, prove a point. Do the thing that is going to be most loving to the spiritual condition of the believer or unbeliever that's there with you at that moment. And uh, if you're like me, I immediately have a concern here. I go, well, (laughs) what if I offend my host? I mean, I actually want my unbelieving neighbor to come to Jesus Christ. And they just invited me for dinner and put this huge spread out. His wife probably cooked all day long. And I'm like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> That's going to be offensive. But I think here's what's going on here. The text assumes that, that once those stakes went up in that moment, if you eat, you're actually going to do spiritual harm to someone. Um, if you've got to choose between offending someone, and doing real spiritual damage, all of a sudden it's actually a pretty easy decision. Don't exercise your liberty. You need to avoid actions that lead to spiritual fallout. Fourth practice. You need to consider who defines your liberties. The answer is actually, I I think from this text, a a bit of a two-edged sword. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. Uh, In this previous scenario, I do not mean your conscience, but his. And then we have the word for, and so we've got some explanations, some reasoning for what we're doing or not doing here. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay, I don't know if you're following Paul's logic here. Uh, We've kind of jumped in and out of the text a bit. But if you follow, if you just read this, the text straight through, those verses logically do not seem to follow the verses that just preceded them. They're contrary to what we would logically expect. It's like, he just said, okay, limit your liberty. And he's like, why would I limit my liberty? Based on someone else's conscience. What? Okay, I'm not following you, Paul. Where, so, so where do the verses that we just read fit into the flow of Paul's argument? Well, it seems that there are two primary options, and I think you're going to have to look at the text if this is going to make sense. Option number one would, would be something like this. Verses 29b to 30, those verses that I just read, are not the logical conclusion to the exception that was just given in verses 28 and 29, but rather the conclusion to the general rule that was stated back up in verses 25 to 27. So basically what you have, let me, I'll try to explain what I just said there because that probably didn't make sense. Um, Basically, you've got these two cases, meat market, your neighbor's house, exercise your liberty. That's the general rule. And then you have an exception given. And now the verses that we're looking at that are explaining either why we're eating the meat or why we're not eating the meat, which one is it? 
And I, I think the verses that we're looking at at this moment, they actually, it's very likely they tie back up into the verses up higher there with those first two scenarios. Eat the meat. Why? Well, what's there in those verses? Why should somebody else determine my liberties? But there's a second option that those verses uh, actually do follow what immediately precedes them. And uh, we might, depending on what translation you have, there's a word determined in the ESV and, and other translations. It's, it's translated the word judged, which might make more sense if we read it that way. But in this case, the argument would go something like this. Uh, you're choosing not to exercise your liberty in the scenario where this guy said, hey, this was just offered to an idol. Because you know that your actions, if you eat in that moment, after he's just told you, hey, my conscience is flawed, <laughs> all of a sudden you decide to eat the meat. Now you're coming under the scrutiny of your brother's flawed conscience. Why would you do that to yourself? And uh, personally, those two options, I, I would personally kind of favor option number one, that his rationale is tying back up to what was said a, a few verses prior. But regardless of which option is to be preferred, preferred both make something very clear about who defines your liberties. And I do think it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, God ultimately determines your liberties. And you can rest in that. Your Christian liberties, freedoms, and rights are determined by God and God alone. And consequently, Scripture determines your liberties, not somebody else's conscience, not associations and origins and all these things or something else, but God and His Word. That means that I am not bound to your conscience. And vice versa. And further, it's not right for me to impose my conscience on you. What we are obligated to do from this text is to love each other and seek the spiritual welfare of each other and the unsaved people around us. God ultimately determines your liberty. You can rest in that. And yet, while that is the case, that God ultimately determines your liberties, other people will likely decide that they should probably chime in on that. And sit perhaps as the judge and determiner of your liberties. And maybe it would be best just to not give them that opportunity. If verses 29 to 30 logically follow what immediately precedes them, I think that would be the point. That people judgmentally scrutinize your liberties. And at times maybe it's best to not give them that opportunity by not exercising your liberty. Look at verses 28 to 30. I'm going to read them kind of in the order that they come there. And I'm going to swap the word determine in the text for the word judge. Beginning in verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Okay, so you're not eating it. For why should my liberty be judged by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. That, that's, uh, reading it that way is kind of the, the second option there. The idea would be that you should abstain for the sake of the other person's conscience because why should you put yourself in a position where your liberty is going to be judged? His conscience is wrong. He just said so when, he, when at the meal there he was like, hey, this has been offered as a sacrifice. It's like sirens are going off. Your conscience is wrong. And knowing that his conscience is wrong, now I'm going to exercise his liberty and come under the scrutiny of his conscience. Romans 14 is another chapter on the conscience. Verse 16 of that text says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
Don't let your good be evil spoken of. In the Christian liberty context. In Arnold uh, Dalimore's biography of Charles Spurgeon, the famed British pastor of the 1800s, he relays how much Spurgeon just loved a good cigar or an alcoholic beverage. Uh, Spurgeon actually was quite open about these matters, public about them. It was no secret. You go, why? Well, he wasn't ashamed of it by any means because he truly believed that those were his Christian liberties. Well, Dalimore writes in this biography, while, while out on a jaunt with his students one morning, when so, several of them had lighted pipes or cigars, Spurgeon said, aren't you ashamed to be smoking so early? And they immediately put out their fire. Then he produced a cigar and lit it. <laughs> and they all had a good laugh. Spurgeon just saw nothing wrong with it. And this was Spurgeon. And one Sunday evening, Spurgeon stood up and he preached a strong message in his pulpit on giving up sin in order to succeed in prayer. And after he preached, he invited a visiting pastor actually to come up to the pulpit and practically apply the message that he had just preached. Well, it was probable that uh, Dr. Pentecost, this visiting pastor, did not know that Spurgeon smoked. But at any rate, he applied Spurgeon's principle by telling of his own experience of giving up cigars. And throughout his words ran the idea that smoking was not only an enslaving habit, but that a Christian must look at it as sin. Well, Dalimore writes in the biography, we must assume that if ever in his lifetime Spurgeon was embarrassed, it was now. And so Spurgeon stands up and he states to the congregation, well, dear friends, you know that some men can do to the glory of God what other men, what to other men would be a sin. And notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. And again, Spurgeon's just arguing, uh, this is my Christian liberty. And he goes to the Ten Commandments. He's like, there are ten. I'm not going to add an eleventh one to it, okay? I'm going to smoke my cigar tonight. And in no time his statement went around London, a cigar to the glory of God. Well, the press picked up the story. And Spurgeon finds himself all of a sudden in deep water, publicly trying to defend himself. And next thing you know, there's an open letter coming his way, expressing concern. And the, the letter reminded him of the example that he was setting and mentioned the effort of Christian parents, of course, <laughs> parents, to keep their youths from that practice, only to be told by their kids, Mom, Spurgeon smokes. You can just imagine. I mean, mom finds her 11-year-old behind the barn smoking, grabs him by the ear, drags him into the house. She's about to clean his clock. And he goes, but mom, Spurgeon smokes. I think what that story does is it's a reminder. It, it, it captures a bit of that two-edged sword in verses 29 and 30 of who defines your liberties. God does. It's that simple, Right? But make no mistake about it, people will make it their business to weigh in. And you, I think you are just wise to consider who defines your liberties. It's very clear from this text that God does. And one of the things that this text might also be highlighting is that while God objectively defines your liberties, subjectively those around you will think that that is their business. And so what should we do? Well, we should all search the scriptures diligently to understand what our liberties truly are in Christ. And I think it just needs said that we might search the scriptures and come to different conclusions, and that might be perfectly fine. But that's what we need to do. And remember that God ultimately determines those liberties and rests in that. And simultaneously remember that people very likely will judgmentally scrutinize your liberties. And you might want to avoid those scenarios. And sometimes it's wise just to not give people the ammo. 
and the opportunity to do that. After all that Paul has covered in chapters 8 to 10, he brings this larger section to a close with some big summary ideas. Uh, maybe, maybe just uh, some big ideas to help us through, look, think through any Christian liberty matter. So here we come to a fifth practice of those who exercise their liberties. You need to ask three high-level questions. And these three questions capture the essence, I think, of all that Paul has argued for in the last three chapters. Question number one, will this bring glory to God? Look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whether you eat the meat offered to an idol or or drink what was offered to an idol, whatever, whatever you decide to do in that moment, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The statement is made in the context of Christian liberty and meat offered to idols. As you decide whether or not to exercise a Christian liberty, right or freedom, you need to make that decision based on what is going to glorify God in this moment, in this situation, in this scenario. Will this magnify God? Will what I'm doing give other people the right opinion of God? Will God be pleased with my decision? Will this bring glory to God? Question number two, will this hinder the gospel? Look at verses 32 and 33. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. In these verses, Paul is not talking about being what we might call a people pleaser. You read Galatians chapter 1, and it's very clear that Paul is not for that. And he's not talking about someone saying, oh, I'm offended by what you did. He's talking about doing things that create an obstacle to people coming to Christ or that push believers towards spiritual ruin. He's talking about things like what he did with the circumcision of Timothy. We're going to go share the gospel with Jews. And if you walk in uncircumcised, that's going to be an obstacle to the gospel. You want to ask something like this. Will exercising this liberty create an obstacle to the gospel? Or will it trip up my brother spiritually? Will it damage my gospel witness or the spiritual health of my brother? You need to ask that question. So, question number one, will this bring glory to God? Question number two, will this hinder the gospel? And finally, will this reflect Christ's example? Look at verse one of the next chapter. Paul writes, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. In chapter nine, Paul set himself forth as an example of one who at times did not exercise his rights and his liberties. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And that pattern that we saw in Paul, you may recall from our time in that chapter, it very much parallels Philippians chapter 2. Christ humbly laid aside what was rightfully his so that the gospel might come to you and to me. Remember, Christ left the glories of heaven. That was his right. And yet he took on flesh and blood and came to earth so that the gospel might come to you and to me, so that you and I might be saved based on the work of Christ. We might repent and believe and put our trust in Christ and have eternal life. As you think about your own Christian liberties, that's what you want to ask. Will this reflect Christ's example? Am I being humble and selfless like Christ, or am I just proud and arrogant and I just want to do this thing because it is my right? You need to ask three high-level questions. Will this bring glory to God? Will this hinder the gospel? And will this reflect Christ's example? The big picture, exercise your Christian liberties to the glory of God. 
and the good of your neighbor. I want to ask you to bow at this time, if you would, with me.